You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr. Mick Pope. Before I start today's program, I want to uh, let you know that I have lined up later this week to record some episodes uh, with Jess Morthup. For those in the Australian uh, climate action, uh, Christian climate action, eco-theology community, Jess Morthup is the founder of the Five Leaf Echo Awards, which is a fantastic scheme for encouraging and rewarding churches who are doing various things to, uh, for want of a better way of saying it, a cliched way of saying it, green their churches uh, to deal with climate change by acting in a corporate fashion. And Jess and I have known each other for a number of years now, so I'm excited to have her on the program and we'll record later this week. But in this this episode, which I'm recording after 1am, Monday morning, I want to free will a little bit. It's it's one of those things born of frustration and um, sheer kind of. I want to use the word gobsmacked. Just watching the whole COVID thing roll out, and then recently here in in Melbourne we had an earthquake. We had an earthquake in Country Victoria, which was felt throughout southeastern Australia. And seeing some Christian, well, in fact, I haven't seen the Christian reactions. I've only heard of them secondhand. Know precisely what they're going to be. Seen this sort of stuff before and wanted to riff off that for a little bit. And there's actually some really strong parallels between the way in which people are going on about that or are likely to be going on about that, knowing what I know and COVID-19. Now, I live in Melbourne, Victoria, or NAM, as it's known in the original language of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And we've had another long lockdown, and we've been locked down for the better part of the past two years, essentially, although it's it's not quite end of September yet, but you get the picture. And people are tired. People are really tired. People are frustrated. People are worn out. People are sick to death of masks. Yet the action that's happened to Victoria has kept the deaths relatively low. We aimed for COVID zero, and then it would be fair to say that decisions made in another state of Australia led to an incursion of the Delta variant, and Delta, it seems, is impossible to suppress. I read an article tonight, or yesterday, as it is now, about the difference between a pandemic and something that's endemic. And it's going to take some time to move from pandemic to endemic, indeed, it's a pandemic, it's a global pandemic at the moment, and we're dealing with all sorts of things like the slowness of vaccine rollout, vaccine inequality globally, and in developed nations, they're talking about a booster shot, which may very well be warranted, I don't know. 
but it comes at a time when for in Australia, for example, um, we don't have anything like we should vaccination rates currently, not even the levels that we've we've uh, aspired to. And there are countries where the vaccination rates really, really slow. And a, a, a virus like COVID-19, I don't need to tell you, it's a global problem that you can't hide from in another country. The fact that it's spread globally should tell you that. Until we have global herd immunity, then it's going to be a problem. And it's going to take some time for it to become endemic, where it's just that background thing in the community, where it maybe it's seasonal, you get outbreaks, but it's largely manageable. That's a while off, yeah. And to, to know that and to not have control over that, I think, is driving people. So one of the things that's happened in Victoria is that there's recently been a reaction to a mandate that those in the construction industry should be vaccinated, mandatorily speaking. The same thing has happened in New South Wales, but not with the same reaction. And one of the, the changes, one of the differences rather, I think is the value of truth-telling in the fourth estate. If you look at a particular brand of newspapers and you look at the coverage of the politicians and what they're doing in New South Wales and Victoria, you see very different stories being told. Very, very different spin. And it's. I'm reminded of the fact that when uh, the Nazi party wanted to influence the thinking of the German peoples, they bought a newspaper. Which is not the same thing as calling the owner of a particular collection of newspapers a Nazi, but it simply points to the fact that we look to the fourth estate to tell us the truth. And I'm not talking about lying. Not in the, the casual sense. I don't know that the Bible, I'm, pro, I'm possibly wrong here, but I don't know that the Bible talks, for example, about lying so much as the, the commandment that says don't bear false witness. And that's significant because bearing false witness where by the testimony of two or three you could be stoned is a bit more significant than, yeah, Grandma, I really love these socks you bought me for Christmas. And that's so trivial. So when there's, there's not truth-telling, then you can steer a conversation, you can change a national or a, a local narrative in order to empower certain individuals. It's even worse when, um, I think it's Harry Frankfurt uh, who wrote a book on bullshit. It's even worse when you've got someone like Donald Trump who's a bullshitter, who has no regard for the truth whatsoever. Whereas those who own newspapers tend to just um, bear false witness, which is lie on a, on a large scale that controls a narrative. And so not only do you have a certain number of disgruntled uh, construction workers, which is, you know, it, it's curious because a, a union should be interested in collective well-being as well as collective action. And given that in Victoria, construction sites uh, have been hotspots for the spreading of the virus, then you think they should be more into it. But one of the assertions that's been made and seems to be borne out is that you've got professional or semi-professional agitators uh, and those who are driven by neo-Nazi concerns. And here's an interesting thing, isn't it? And here's where I think the coronavirus represents um, in the non outside of the church, a secular version of the book of Revelation, is that you've got people who can't deal with the idea that, for example, random things happen. Uh, that in a world, a, a world of becoming, 
to pick up on some process language, not on, not on a process theologian, but a world that's in becoming, viruses evolve and zoonotic diseases occur. And a paper that I read suggested that there were two earlier lineages of coronavirus early on in the piece that were different, which suggests that this particular coronavirus has crossed to humans via an intermediary, so from bats to something else to humans, at least twice. And so the whole narrative, oh, it's the Chinese government, they've either intentionally spread this or it's escaped from a lab, is torn down. None of which is to say that the face-saving exercise of the Chinese government is dealing necessarily in facts or that they've come clean in all details. And, okay, you could say you can understand that they want to save face. And yes, eventually they did release um, the sequencing of, of this virus. But that's still a far cry from saying they did it on purpose or it was a, a stuff up on their part. It's easier to tell that kind of narrative just as it's easier to tell narratives that simplify the problems of the world. Uh, I'm disenfranchised, I'm out of work, I can't get a job, it must be the Jews, um, it's foreigners, it's this, that, the other, blah, 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 blah. The, the typical rhetoric of the neo-Nazi. And there's been a fair bit um, over the past couple of months in the Australian press about neo-Nazis in Australia and how the movement is... Well, it, it has followers. I, I don't have a sense at all for how um, strongly it's growing. But at a time when people are frustrated by um, the policing of COVID, and I saw something just recently where someone was allegedly slammed to the ground by police. There's no context for it. Uh, people rock up to protests and one thing leads to another and so on. And so there's, there's always been an anti-authoritarian kind of streak that runs through Australian society, given the way that we started as a penal colony and the tall poppy syndrome and all sorts of other things. So we fiercely egalitarian means pulling others down and thumbing your nose at those over you which is different to seeking justice and equality for all. So it's been pointed out various various times that those who who march for freedoms, whether or not they're the hardcore neo-Nazis are trying to leverage off this or just people who are frustrated, that you don't necessarily see these same people, we don't at all, marching for the freedoms of uh, asylum seekers who are locked up or marching for closing the gap for Indigenous justice, or marching for climate justice. No, it's very close to home. It's what my freedoms entail, not yours. And it's all through a narrative of persecution, which is a, a pretty common one. We're not in control. I've said this before. We live in a non-linear world. It's a world of becoming, to pick up on language. Uh, recently, I was listening to a podcast live with... Um, Trip, Trip, what's Trip's last name? Trip Fuller, a process thinker. And he, not that I'm a process thinker, uh, but I'm interested in open and relational theism. And, and Trip talks about the universe as a universe of becoming. And that's, that's obviously the case, that new forms emerge, mutations occur, um, natural selection kicks on, and viruses, which are the oldest form of quote-unquote life, because it's arguable whether or not they're alive, They've been around for a long time. They've crossed over from animals to human beings a lot, and the more we, which we push 
natural ecosystems and impoverish them, the more likely it is these things are going to occur. So we need to get our approach right in the face of COVID-19 because this is going to happen again. And, you know, we, we've seen it. There's been SARS and MERS and Ebola, and these things have not spread far because they bump people off really quickly. But COVID-19 hit that sweet spot. And so it's, I suppose it's natural in a sense to think, well, the Chinese did it. They didn't. They made some mistakes. They don't want us to think that. Lots of people made mistakes. Mistakes have been made in this country of Australia. But that's the way viruses work. And so a secular theodicy, a secular solution to the problem of evil and suffering in the world is to find people to blame, find governments to blame, find scapegoats. Um, and that's where you shrink your world to your own colour, your own kind. And that's where this whole neo-fascist kind of thing's coming in. It's just a, a, a tipping point for a whole bunch of grievances, I think. And, you know, by and large, insecure white males. So we have to deal with that. And five or six days of this, and it's just... It really, this concerns me, and, and not in the apocalyptic sense per se, but just in a, a normal socio-political sense, that we're seeing such a slide to fascism. And dare I say, and this might be a little bit provocative, as I see that in Brexit. See that in Brexit. Um, only because... Well, firstly, it's a very nationalistic turn. It was a scapegoating of foreign governments. Let's never mind the economic rationalism and neoliberalism, if that's really a thing, of Margaret Thatcher at the same time as Ronald Reagan, which changed the landscape of the United Kingdom. Maybe things weren't entirely on level playing field in the EU. But again, collectivism, fighting for the common good. And now they, they're reaping the result of the very messy divorce of that. But it's just... Um, there's always that suspicion of the other, this you know, this island nation drawing their borders in and look what we're going to be able to do on our own and that's going to be continually reflected in the way in which they treat foreign workers and there's a dearth of those now and now they find, oh, we can't, um, we can't go forward without that cheap source of labour. Of course, Australia is the same, um, in the, particularly in, in farming in orchards and so on so again that's a that's a feature of capitalism isn't it um what um and the fellow's name's gone straight out of my head and that's really annoying um talks about he's got a book that talks about um the way in which capitalism runs off cheap things so there's there's cheap labor poor labor laws and cheap food so you can afford to feed them cheaply and then cheap resources, which is, is how nature's chewed up. I'm rambling at this point, but you get the general vibe of where I'm going. Is this whole reaction against the coronavirus, some of it is against... It's, it's perfectly natural. People are fatigued. Some of it may very well be against things that aren't, um, aren't fair or have just gone on too long or, or whatever, but a lot of it's deep-seated insecurity and a desperate desire to control the narrative, to try and understand the world. 
So that's from a secular point of view. And then on top of that, we had a uh, an earthquake. And I want to talk about that in the second half of the program. Well, welcome back. I've been rambling and I've been trying to get uh, my head around reactions to, to coronavirus and cast it in a light, if you like, of a, a secular eschatology or a secular theodicy. In fact, the two are done together, you know, the, the end of the world or the end of our, the world as we know it or, or um, whatever. And who do we blame for the way things are going and for the way in which that shrinks our world and it leads to nationalism and neo-fascism and so on. We had an earthquake the other day. 5.8 on the Richter scale, 10 kilometers below the surface, so a shallow earthquake. It shook one of my bookshelves. There are no more cracks in the house, which is nice. The house was re-stumped and uh, some cracks plastered over. I heard that some Christians leaped straight on to that and whenever you have a quote-unquote natural disaster of course it wasn't anything of the, su the such really there was a building damaged in one of our better uh, to do suburbs but beyond that I'm not aware of there being too much that, that occurred but earthquakes trigger Christians because there's earthquakes in the Bible so for example in one of the Gospels Forgive me, I can't remember which one. There are earthquakes that accompany the resurrection. Or was it the, the crucifixion even? <laughs> Poor biblical literacy. Um, snap on the wrist. No um, smiley face for me. And then the dead come out of the tombs. And so someone recently said, this is a trip fuller. Uh, there were zombies. I have a friend who's not a Christian. He talks about um, happy zombie Jesus day on Easter Sunday. Anyway, that's apologies if you find that vaguely offensive, but whatever so people uh, Christians will see these as judgments on things they don't like it happened to Victoria so people don't like Dan Andrews because we've been in lockdown and that lockdowns included churches um, we got rid of um, conversion therapy for um, LGBTQI people so if you're Christian you don't like that the earthquake was on that So you pick. Now the problem with that is to think about again a world that's in becoming. And so let me take you through history of the universe. Now the universe is roughly what thirteen point something billion years old, and we know that because if you look how fast the galaxies are moving away from each other, you can interpolate backwards. That's the so-called Hubble constant. That's one of three predictors of the hot Big Bang. The second one is the cosmic microwave background, which is essentially a stretched out, cooled version of that initial fireball. And the third one is the background abundance of the elements. When I did stellar astrophysics, that is the study of stars at universities and undergrad in the dark ages, 30 odd years ago, 
I discovered that for those who study stars, they have a very simple alphabet, X, Y, and Z, or Z for anyone who's from America. X is the concentration of hydrogen, Y the concentration of helium, and Z the concentration of metals, which for an astrophysicist is anything heavier than helium. And one of the things about the hot Big Bang is that when the fireball became cool enough for the quarks uh, to fuse together uh, to form hydrogen, uh, form protons and neutrons, uh, they formed, so proton is hydrogen, and then some of them made helium, and then you've got lithium, beryllium, and I think as heavy as boron, and nothing else. Why am I saying this? Well, then you get generations of stars which bang hydrogen and helium together, well, hydrogen together, uh, and then helium together and so on to build the heavier elements. And then you get to iron, and a star can't make anything heavier than that, and so you get a supernova, which produces enough heat to um, form things like uranium. Where are we going with all this? Well, anything, any star that's formed out of like this third generation or forms as part of third generation, will have a, a suite of elements within it. And any planetary system that forms around them will have these as well. So the Earth um, formed out of the collision of lots of tiny uh, particles of dust as, as thin as smoke, and they became attracted to each other through electrostatic forces. So think taking your jumper off and then it attracting your hair or you know, static electricity type thing. And then larger and larger bodies collide until two Earth-sized or near-Earth-sized objects collided together and formed the Earth and the Moon. Now, the Earth was a molten blob from all these collisions and it started to cool and an iron core formed out of that. And then you've got this region between the Earth's surface um, and this iron core that's, that's molten. I don't know if you've ever played that game, The Floor is Lava, as a kid. Well, not far below our feet, 10, 15 kilometers, I forget. You know, 10 to 40, I think it is, but don't quote me because this is just off the top of my head. Uh, you have the mantle and it's molten. It is lava. And if you go, if, um, I don't know, how high up? Uh, up in an airplane, you can't breathe either. So there's like a thin little layer that's safe for human beings. Don't dig too deep a hole and don't go too high up without oxygen. But the, the point of all of this is that this mantle has um, radioactive elements in it that decay and keep it, um, keep it molten. And this is important. See, there's an atmosphere on the Earth, but there's no atmosphere on Mars. Um, there are no... There's no, there are Mars quakes, I don't think, but there are earthquakes. Now, why is all of this important? Well, with a liquid mantle, as it slowly cools, uh, in fact, Lord Kelvin calculated the age of the Earth a number of years ago, a couple of centuries ago, I think, from memory, and got a very young age for the Earth because he didn't know about radioactive material. Because it was the idea that if the Earth's formed out of a molten uh, ball then eventually cools and when it does it dies and I'll tell you why that is in a second but the radioactive material heats the earth and it keeps the core or the, the mantle rather molten and now why is that important well I'm recording this talk using electricity and the laws of electromagnetism say that if you have a wire with charged particles in it electrons which can move freely through a metal and a 
a magnet and you spin that around in the, the wire inside the magnet, that will create a force on the, the particles, the electrons, and move them, and that forms a current. So if you have um, charged the, the, the uh, particles in the, this molten uh, mantle of the Earth moving around, by convection, you know, the same thing as putting a pot on a stove, you see the bubbles, that's convection, or you see a cloud um, on a, a hot day, a thunderstorm, that's convection, air rises and then air sinks, so the rising air is the cloud, that you get the same rising and sinking motion inside the mantle, and that helps generate a magnetic field, which in turn protects the Earth's atmosphere from what's known as the solar wind, which is this wind blowing out from the, the sun. It's the gravitationally unbound outer part of the sun's atmosphere. And it's blown Mars's atmosphere away because Mars is smaller than the Earth, which therefore it contained less radioactive material. Therefore, its core was molten um, for less time and generated a magnetic field for less time than the Earth. So its, it's magnetic field disappeared and so its atmosphere disappeared. That's one of the causes at any rate. But the other thing then about um, the presence of this radioactive material and this molten mantle is that you get um, these convective motions happening and the driving of what's known as plate tectonics. So the skin of the Earth is moving about all the time. And in the early phases of Earth history, all you had was ocean. And water, when it interacts with rock and it goes through this melting and this is the crust of the earth, melting and being reprocessed will produce continental crust, which is lighter than oceanic crust, which means the continents have been built over time. And anytime you get a colliding oceanic crust with a continental crust, the oceanic crust goes underneath it. And so you get water being dragged down uh, and that's where you get very um, active volcanoes, where the ocean crust going under the, the continental crust. So you get plates sliding past each other, and you get volcanoes and all sorts of tectonic activity. But you also build continents, and you get a magnetic field. So you can see where I'm driving this. The things that have helped the Earth to evolve to a point where life can exist have relied upon processes that scare us in the case of earthquakes or can kill lots of people. Volcanic eruptions and, and earthquakes which topple our cities. It's also possible, I don't know where this theory is at these days, but at the bottom of oceans where plates are expanding, you get these um, black or white smokers, these um, volcanic vents, and they're surrounded by bacteria and a rich rich ecosystem. So there's some people who think that life even um, began around these vents. So you, what, what you, if you're not getting all the detail, understand that the thing that happened the other day is not the judgment of God. Some might claim the timing is significant, but then you need the prescience to be able to understand and prove that that particular earthquake was in reaction to a particular event in human history, a particular decision made, rather than a feature of the way the world works to produce order. Or when it comes to the earthquakes that, or the, the tectonic activity that built the Himalayas as India uh, bored into Eurasia, the generation of beautiful landscapes.
the way in which the continents have moved over the globe that have helped drive ice ages, which have helped drive evolution of new species. All these things are the process of becoming of a, a universe that began in a big bang and matter was processed through generations of stars to produce radioactive material that sits in our mantle, that helps drive our tectonics, that gives rise to earthquakes and to uh, volcanoes. And uh, here's another thing. Mix water with carbon dioxide and you get a weak acid. And you can lock carbon dioxide from the atmosphere into rock. Now that might sound great in a time of climate change, and indeed we need to look at artificial ways of doing that, but if you left that without plate tectonics, what that would mean is that you'd eventually lose all the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and what was left would freeze. And that's what has happened on Mars. So what happens in the Earth is that the carbon dioxide gets locked up in the rocks, uh, particularly in the oceans. Those ocean plates subduct, as I said before, because they're heavier underneath continental plates and they get reprocessed through um, volcanoes. So again... The thing that happened the other day as an earthquake is a direct result of a system that reprocesses carbon dioxide for our own good. Otherwise, the earth would die for lack of it, which is not to say that the, the carbon dioxide that we've produced by burning of fossil fuels is a good thing, certainly not for us, and will drive extinction of many species of animal. If what I've said sounds complicated to you, it's because it is. It's because the world is not simple. You cannot simply say, oh, God did this or God did that in judgment when some things simply are and we need to deal with the fact that we are not in control and this is the way things have been set up. So telling narrow-minded, simplistic, biblical ideas of the end of the world is nigh because there was an earthquake about the time of things happening that we don't like is incredibly stupid. And I'm really frustrated that that sort of rubbish is going around again. And it's just off the back of narrow-minded Christianity that points the finger and wants to judge this, that, and the other, that, that rather than get out and get its hands dirty and stick up its hand and say, yeah, we will wear masks and we will bear the cost of not being able to gather together in person and find other ways of supporting Christians and the community in the same way that Christians did through the plague in the early days of, um, of Christianity in the Roman Empire, and do all these sort of canonic self-emptying things. No, we're going to sit on our backsides instead and spin stupid yarns because we're not in control. And we want to put God in control, but we want to put God in control in a way that makes us feel comfortable. All right, that, having said that, of course, that's what you do want. But the way in which God is in control is not always the way in which we think or would like God to be in control. Um, clearly, I'm no Calvinist. But I'm not a process theologian either. I want a God who can act. But I do know that there's a God who's chosen to work through a human being. Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And then through the church, motivated by divine love. So what are we going to do? Are we going to bear false testimony to the word of God? by spinning it into various ways that make us feel more comfortable or deal with difficult truths both in the Bible and in the world and use that as a, uh, a push-off to, to greater action and engagement and love. The world is not simple. 
but the gospel kind of sort of is love God and love your neighbor. Um, so I pray at this time, in the midst of all this madness, uh, you can not only love neighbor, but you can be a neighbor that somebody loves and know that you are loved by God. Anyway, thank you for listening once more to my rambling. A guest coming up. Uh, until then, God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.